Welcome, friends. Welcome back, and welcome to another episode of the Renegade Detroit Investors Podcast. I'm your host, Jeremy Burgess, professional real estate investor, permaculture, and urban farmer, curmudgeon, skeptic, and real estate agent here at Renegade Realty Group with Keller Williams. What is Renegade Detroit Investors? Well, RDI is a local real estate investment and business group that meets monthly at various locations. Right now, we're meeting at Shields for our main meeting and for our Ask Me Anything, although we've been suspended on that thanks to the coronavirus. We're going to be hosting that online as an Ask Me Anything. This ain't your grandma's Rhea, folks. No guru bullshit, no smell of stale coffee, Ben Gay, and or disappointment. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And then, of course, there's this podcast where we continue the real estate conversation. When we can have local events again, and you're ever interested in attending, go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash Renegade Detroit Investors, or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. Legal disclaimer, in no way, shape, or form should anything that I say today be taken as legal and or investment advice. We highly recommend that before you make any investment decision, you contact a lawyer and or other licensed professionals, be an adult. Don't sue me. Time for the Renegade Joint Investors Show Quote of the Week, where I pick a quote that sets the tone for the podcast and hopefully your week. And this week I went with something from Mr. Jocko Willink. Most of us aren't defeated in one decisive battle. We are defeated one tiny, seemingly insignificant surrender at a time that chips away at who we should really be. All right, folks. We're going to get in. This is going to be the first part of another angry read by Jeremy of Extreme Ownership by Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Seems an appropriate time for this, right? As we have moral and political panic where all of our problems are somebody else's. So we're going to make them our problems, right? Hey, if you if you want the money, that's what you got to do, folks. You can whine and sit on the sidelines and beg for handouts, or you can get in the game. I recommend you get in the game. couple updates real quick. Coronavirus update. Michigan real estate has been shut down. Can't show anymore right now. Virtual, is, virtual showings is a gray area. I'm a listing agent, so... No, don't know what we're going to do about that. Um, certainly can't do any showings. Real comp shut showings down, so we can't even schedule showings for go and show. But they left a loophole open for virtual showings and calling the listing agent. So it is a shit show over here. Governor did not do a great job at clearly identifying what was and wasn't essential. Good news, though, for everybody with deals in the pipeline and or cash deals with waived inspections. Title companies are still working, so we're still getting everything we have under contract closed. We're not sure if appraisers are as of yet considered essential. I've had some reports where people are seeing it scheduled through showing time. We won't see that. Now we'll have to call. Um, I have a couple appraisals they're going to have to schedule, so I will update you on that. But title companies are still closing, so we're still getting things closed. It's just how do we get it inspected? How do we show it? And how do we get it appraised if it's not a cash deal? So those are the challenges we're facing for our two upcoming events. We have tomorrow, this is going to go up today. It's March 25th, Wednesday, March 25th. Tomorrow, March 26th, which is Thursday, is our Renegade Detroit Ask Me Anything. And that's normally in person. But we cannot do that, obviously, with the coronavirus. So we're going to do it online on my main Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash Detroit Jeremy. I will post a link when I go live to the RDI 
main page into the Metro group and into the Facebook event. Okay. And we're going to ask me anything. So that's the way we're going to have to do it. For our April meeting, for the main meeting, obviously we cannot all get together a couple hundred of us in a room and do the main meeting. So here's what we're going to do. You are going to record three videos and go look in the events. I'm not going to post all the rules here, but essentially you're going to record three videos, max your commercial up to 20 seconds, your deals that you have to sell up to three minutes, regardless of how many deals you have. And your shameless self-promotion, 40 seconds max, all separate videos, hold your phone sideways, share them with me via Dropbox, Jeremy at renegadedetroit.com. That is my Dropbox. You can share it with me and you don't have to remember this. If you actually go to Facebook or Meetup, the notes are in the event on how to do this and get it to me and I'm going to edit it together. Do not include any copyrighted music or videos, folks, or I will not put it up there. But otherwise, be as creative as you absolutely can and want. And just make sure you get that to me by midnight on Friday, April 3rd. So it gives us time to edit it. And we're going to post it sometime on Tuesday, hopefully right around 6.30ish. So you you guys could all listen to it on the podcast and watch it on YouTube and Facebook. It's a little weird way to do it, but that's what we're going to do. Why sit around and wait? Without further ado, let's get into it. So today, folks, we have one of my favorite books. I've read it multiple times. Some of the books that led me out of the wilderness and into prosperity. It's Extreme Ownership, Jocko Willink, and Leif Babin. All right, we're going to go ahead and start. So go ahead and grab your book, get yourself a drink, get your highlighter ready, all that stuff. We're going to start with the forward here. I have the new updated version because I went and bought another copy because I saw that he put in a new forward and question answering section. So I'm going to read that too. Forward, of the many exceptional leaders we served alongside throughout our military careers, the consistent attribute that made them great was that they took absolute ownership, extreme ownership. Not just of those things for which they were responsible, but for everything that impacted their mission. These leaders cast no blame. They made no excuses. Instead of complaining about challenges or setbacks, they developed solutions and solved problems. They leveraged assets, relationships, and resources to get the job done. Their own egos took a backseat to the mission and their troops. These leaders truly led. In the years since we left active duty, we have worked with multitudes of business professionals from senior executives to frontline managers across a vast range of industries, including finance, construction, manufacturing, technology, energy, retail, pharmaceutical, healthcare, and also military police, fire departments, and emergency first responders. The most successful men and women we've seen in the civilian world practice the same breed of extreme ownership. Likewise, the most successful high-performance teams we've worked with demonstrate this mindset throughout their organizations. Since the publication of Extreme Ownership, we've heard from readers across the United States and around the world whose lives have been strongly impacted for good. They've told us how implementing its principles changed their lives and made them better, a more productive employee, a more supportive spouse, and a more engaged parent. Once people stop making excuses, stop blaming others, and take ownership of everything in their lives, they are compelled to take action to solve their problems. 
They are better leaders, better followers, more dependable and actively contributing team members, and more skilled and aggressively driving toward mission accomplishment. But they're also humble, able to keep their ingos from damaging relationships and adversely impacting the mission and the team. We've heard countless stories about how applying these combat leadership principles have helped readers accomplish what others or even they themselves had previously thought impossible. Extreme ownership has helped people all over the world launch a successful company or nonprofit, receive a major promotion, land a better job with greater responsibility and more opportunity for growth, hit numbers far beyond expectations, achieve special recognition as an exceptional team member, or accomplish their goals, whatever they may be. Every day we hear new stories, different people, different businesses, different industries. The details change, the characters are diverse. There are always slight differences in the way things unfold, but their outcomes are ultimately the same. I can't believe how well that works is a common response. The principles are simple, but not easy. Taking ownership for mistakes and failures is hard, but doing so is key to learning, to developing solutions, and ultimately to victory. Those who successfully implement these principles run circles around the rest of the world. Since the release of Extreme Ownership, the fundamental principles of combat leadership that we learned on the battlefield of Iraq have been exposed to, understood, and implemented by hundreds of thousands of readers around the world. We've worked with thousands more individuals through our leadership consulting business, Echelon Front, and reached a vast audience on social media. We've also been fortunate to receive feedback from many of them on a daily basis. Their responses have been incredible. We've heard from readers who called the book life-changing, the best leadership book I've ever read, and exactly what I needed to hear. They explained how they had learned even more on the second, third, or fourth read through the book. There can be no higher compliment to us as authors than to observe the scores of extreme ownership copies we have signed with multiple color tabs marking well-underlined, highlighted, and dog-ear pages with scribbled notes in the margins that serve as testament to the book's frequent use as a ready reference guide for engaged leaders navigating the challenges of business and life. Such testimonials and observations inspire us to work even harder ourselves. But what's been even more gratifying is to hear about the results. We get reports from military leaders on the front lines putting the principles to work against our nation's enemies. These leaders are leading up the chain of command to receive the green light for approval to launch on critical battlefield missions or utilize crucial resources. Chief executive officers of massive global companies detail how they have initiated extreme ownership in their organizations and observe their personal Personnel throughout the chain of command step up and lead. We hear from first responders who utilize the lessons from extreme ownership and their official training programs to lead their troops in stressful and dangerous situations. All of their stories have reinforced what we have learned in the SEALs team, SEAL teams. Leadership is the most important thing on the battlefield, and the principles of good leadership do not change regardless of the mission, the environment, or the personalities of those involved. Leading is leading. We work with a division of, construct, of a construction company that faced the grim possibility of shutdown due to systemic safety problems. But once its employees implemented extreme ownership, the division not only solidified their right to operate, but it also earned a top position in safety at the company. We've helped companies streamline their manufacturing process, make deadlines on the delivery of a product, and complete vast projects on time under budget.
We've guided young, capable, eager leaders struggling in antagonistic relationships with their bosses to implement the mindset of no excuses and no one else to blame. By taking ownership, checking their egos, and accepting the blame for a difficult relationship, they repaired relationships and regained the trust of their leaders. As a result, they achieved recognition above their peers and throughout their industry for exceptional performance. We've heard from leaders in the medical profession who tell us how explaining the why to their team and communicating orders in a simple, clear, and concise manner greatly enhance their team's performance and save lives in the operating room. We've watched fire department battalion training chiefs utilize extreme ownership as a handbook, teaching their firefighters to implement cover and move to better function as a team, enabling them to more effectively serve their communities while better protecting their firefighters in harm's way. We've seen police officers promoted into leadership positions of greater authority and responsibility attribute their success directly to the principles of extreme ownership. A number of school teachers, educators, and coaches have told us how the concepts of this book have made them better, delivering greater impact and improving the lives of their students and athletes. Pastors and mission groups have relayed to us how extreme ownership made their teams more effective, delivering greater impact to the lives of people in need. We have even heard from spouses who tell us how extreme ownership saved their marriage. Once they stopped pointing fingers and casting blame on their wife or husband, they were able to look inwardly at what they could take ownership of to produce a better outcome. As a result, their relationships were repaired and strengthened. To see such far-reaching, extraordinary impact is deeply meaningful to us. We wrote this book to truly help others, leaders and aspiring leaders, to be better to lead more successful and fulfilling lives, become more engaged and effective people, to have a greater impact for good on everyone around them. Helping others live better lives is also a way for us to honor the legacy and heritage of those who served in combat who gave their last full measure. We owe them everything. We believe in these principles because we have witnessed their extraordinary results, not only on the battlefield, but also in business and life. We look forward to watching the message continue to spread far and wide and to seeing the mindset of extreme ownership continue to enable every leader, every follower, and every person to become even more effective and to fulfill their ultimate purpose, lead and win. Get after it. Jocko Willink and Leif Babin. Preface. So there I was. Plenty of glorified war stories start like that. And the SEAL teams, we make fun of those who tell embellished tales about themselves. A typical war story told in jest about something a SEAL did usually begins like this. So no shit, there I was, knee-deep in grenade pins. This book isn't meant to be an individual's glorified war story. As SEALs, we operate as a team of high-caliber, multi-talented individuals who have been through perhaps the toughest military training and most rigorous screening process anywhere. But in the SEAL program, it is all about the team. The sum is far greater than the parts. We refer to our professional warfare community simply as the teams. We call ourselves Team Guys. This book describes SEAL combat operations and training through our eyes, from our individual perspectives, and applies our experience to leadership and management practices in the business world. Yet our SEAL operations were not about us as individuals. Our stories are of the SEAL platoon and task unit we were lucky enough to lead. Chris Kyle, the SEAL sniper and author of the bestseller American Sniper, which inspired the movie, was one member of that platoon and task unit. 
Charlie's platoon lead sniper and point man in task unit bruiser. He played a part in the combat examples in this book, as did a host of other teammates who, though deserving of recognition, remain out of the spotlight. Far from being ours alone, the war stories in this book are of the brothers and leaders we serve with and fought alongside, the team. The combat scenarios describe how we confronted obstacles as a team and overcame those challenges together. After all, there can be no leadership where there is no team. Between the Vietnam War and the global war on terrorism, the U.S. military experienced a 30-year span of virtually no sustained combat operations, with the exception of a few flashes of conflict, Grenada, Panama, Kuwait, Somalia, only a handful of U.S. military leaders had any real substantial combat experience. And the SEAL teams, these were the dry years. As those who served in heavy combat situations in the jungles of Vietnam retired, their combat leadership lessons faded. All that changed on September 11, 2001, when the horrific terrorist attacks on the U.S. homeland launched America once again into sustained conflict. More than a decade of continuous war and tough combat operations in Iraq and Afghanistan gave birth to a new generation of leaders in the ranks of America's fighting forces. These leaders were forged not in classrooms through hypothetical training and theory, but through practical, hands-on experience on the front lines of war, the front echelon. Leadership theories were tested in combat, hypotheses put through trials of fire, Across the ranks of the U.S. military services, forgotten wartime lessons were rewritten in blood. Some leadership principles developed in training proved ineffective in actual combat. Thus, effective leadership skills were honed, while those that proved impractical were discarded, spawning a new generation of combat leaders from across the broad ranks of all U.S. military services, Army, Marine Corps, Navy, Air Force, and those of our allies. The U.S. Navy SEALs team were at the forefront of this leadership transformation, emerging from the triumphs and tragedies of war with a crystallized understanding of what it takes to succeed in the most challenging environments that combat presents. Among this new generation of combat leaders, there are many war stories. After years of successful operations, including the heroic raid that killed Osama bin Laden, U.S. Navy SEALs have piqued the public's interest and received more attention than most of us ever wanted. This spotlight has shed light on aspects of our organization that should remain secret. In this book, we are careful not to remove that shroud any further. We do not discuss classified programs or violate non-disclosure agreements surrounding our operational experiences. Many SEAL memoirs have been written, some by experienced and well-respected operators who wanted to pass on heroic deeds and accomplishments of our tribe, a few, unfortunately, by SEALs who hadn't contributed much to the community. Like so many of our SEAL teammates, we had a negative view when SEAL books were published. When then would we choose to write a book? Why then would we choose to write a book? As battlefield leaders, we learned extremely valuable lessons through success and failure. We made mistakes and learned from them, discovering what works and what doesn't. We trained SEAL leaders and watched them implement the principles we ourselves had learned with the same success on difficult battlefields. Then, as we worked with businesses in the civilian sector, we again saw the leadership principles we followed in combat lead to victory for the companies and executives we trained. Many people, both in the SEAL teams and in the businesses we worked with, asked for us to document our lessons learned in a concrete way that leaders could reference. 
We wrote this book to capture those leadership principles for future generations so that they may not be forgotten, so that as new wars begin and end, such crucial lessons will not have to be relearned, rewritten in more blood. We wrote this so that the leadership lessons can continue to impact teams beyond the battlefield in all leadership situations. Any company, team, or organization in which a group of people strives to achieve a goal and accomplish a mission. We wrote this book for leaders everywhere to utilize the principles we learn to lead and win. Who are we to write such a book? It may seem that anyone who believes that can write a book on leadership must think themselves the epitome of what every leader should aspire to be. But we are far from perfect. We continue to learn and grow as leaders every day, just as any leaders who are truly honest with themselves must. We were simply fortunate enough to experience an array of leadership challenges that taught us valuable lessons. This book is our best effort to pass those lessons on, not from a pedestal or a position of superiority, but from a humble place where the scars of our failings still show. Man, that's a good one. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bookmark that one. We are Jocko Willink and Leif Babin, SEAL officers who served together in Al-Ramadi, Iraq, during Operation Iraqi Freedom. There we became intimately familiar with the humbling trials of war. We were lucky enough to build, train, and lead high-performance, winning teams that proved exceptionally effective. We saw firsthand the perils of complacency, having served on a battlefield where at any time the possibility of our position being overrun by a large force of well-armed enemy fighters was quite real. We know what it meant to fail, to lose, to be surprised, outmaneuvered, or simply beaten. Those lessons were the hardest, but perhaps the most important. We learned that leadership requires belief in the mission and unyielding perseverance to achieve victory particularly when doubters question whether victory is even possible. As SEAL leaders, we developed, tested, confirmed, and captured an array of leadership lessons as well as management and organizational practices. We then built and ran SEAL leadership training and helped write the doctrine for the next generation of SEAL leaders. Our SEAL task unit served through the bulk of what has become known as the Battle of Ramadi. But this book is not intended as a historical account of those combat operations. In a concise volume such as this, we cannot possibly tell the stories of service and sacrifice by the U.S. military men and women who served, fought, and bled, and died there. We, the authors and the SEALs we served with in Ramadi, were tremendously humbled by the courage, dedication, professionalism, selflessness, and sacrifice displayed by the units we served with under both the U.S. Army 2nd Brigade 28th Infantry Brigade Combat Team, and the U.S. Army 1st Brigade 1st Armored Division, the Ready 1st Brigade Combat Team. These include a distinguished list of courageous and storied units, both U.S. Army and Marine Corps. It would require an entire book or series of books to detail their hero, heroism, heroism and unfaltering dedication to the mission of our country. God bless them all. Inside that band of brothers carrying out the broader fight for Ramadi was our SEAL task unit, Naval Special Warfare Task Unit Bruiser. Again, the combat experiences relayed in the following chapters are not meant for historic reference. Although we have used quotes to impart the message of conversations we had, they are certainly not perfect and are subject to the passage of time, the constraints of this format, and the shortfalls of memory. Our SEAL combat experiences depicted in this book have been carefully edited and altered to conceal specific tasks, tactics, techniques, 
and procedures and to guard classified information about when and where specific operations took place and who participated in them. The manuscript was submitted and approved through the Pentagon's security review process in accordance with the U.S. Department of Defense requirements. We have done our utmost to protect the identities of our brothers and the SEAL teams with whom we served and for those still serving in harm's way. They are silent professionals and seek no recognition. We take this solemn responsibility to protect them with the utmost seriousness. We took the same precaution with the rest of the warriors and the Ready First Brigade combat team. We have used almost entirely rank alone to identify these brave soldiers and Marines. This is by no means meant to detract from their service, but only to ensure their privacy and security. Likewise, we have done our utmost to protect the clients of our leadership and management consulting company, Echelon Front. We have refrained from using company names, changed the names of individuals, masked industry-specific information, and in some cases, altered positions of executives and industries to protect the identities of people and companies. Their confidentiality is sacrosanct. While the stories of our lessons learned in the business world are based directly on our real experiences, in some cases, we combine situations, condense timelines, and modified storylines to more clearly emphasize the principles we are trying to illustrate. The idea for this book was born from the realization that the principles critical to the to SEAL success on the battlefield, how SEALs train and prepare their leaders, how they mold and develop high-performance teams, and how they lead in combat are directly applicable to success in any group, organization, corporation, business, and, to a broader degree, life. This book provides the reader with our formula for success, the mindset and guiding principles that enable SEAL leaders and combat units to achieve extraordinary results. It demonstrates how to apply these directly in business and life to likewise achieve victory. Introduction, Ramadi, Iraq, The Combat Leader's Dilemma, Leif Babin. Only the low rumble of diesel engines can be heard as a convoy of Humvees ease to a stop along the canal road. Iraqi farm fields and groves of date palms spread from a distance until the darkness in all directions. The night was quiet. Only the occasional barking of a distant dog and a lonely flickering light gave any indication of the Iraqi village beyond. If intelligence reports were accurate, that village harbored a high-level terrorist leader and perhaps his entourage of well-armed fighters. No lights were visible from the convoy, and darkness blanketed the road, blacking out most of the surroundings to the naked eye. But through the green glow of our night vision goggles, a flurry of activity could be seen. A platoon of Navy SEALs kitted up with helmets, body armor, weapons, and gear, along with an element of Iraqi soldiers, dismounted from the vehicles and quickly aligned in patrol formation. An explosive ordnance disposal EOD bomb technician pushed forward and checked out a dirt bridge that crossed the canal head. Insurgents often planted deadly explosives at such choke points. Some were powerful enough to wipe out an entire vehicle and all of its occupants in a sudden inferno of flying jagged metal and searing heat. For now, the way ahead appeared clear, and the assault force of SEALs and Iraqi soldiers stealthily pushed across the bridge on foot toward a group of buildings where the terrorists reportedly took refuge. A particularly evil insurgent responsible for the deaths of American soldiers, Iraqi security forces, and innocent civilians, this notorious al-Qaeda in Iraq, Amir, had successfully evaded capture for months. Now was a critical opportunity to catch or kill him before his next attack. 
The SEAL assault force patrolled up a narrow street between the high walls of residential compounds and moved to the door of the target building. Boom. The deep concussion from the explosive breaching charge shattered the quiet night. It was a hell of a wake-up call for the occupants inside the house as the door blew in and aggressive, well-armed men with weapons ready for a fight entered the house. The Humphreys pushed forward across the bridge down the narrow street wide enough only for a single vehicle and came to a stop in security positions around the target building. Each vehicle's turret contained a seal manning a heavy machine gun ready to provide fire support if things went sideways. I was the ground force commander, the senior SEAL in charge of this operation. I had just stepped out of the command vehicle and onto the street nearing the target building when suddenly someone yelled, We got a squirter! It was our EOD operator nearby who had seen the squirter, meaning someone fleeing the target building. Perhaps it was a terrorist himself or someone with information on his whereabouts. We couldn't allow him to escape. The EOD operator and I were the only ones in a position to pursue him. So we sprinted after the man. We chased him down a narrow alleyway around a group of buildings and down another dark alleyway that paralleled the street where our Humvees were parked. Finally, we caught up to him, a middle-aged Iraqi man in a traditional Arabic robe. As we were trained, he was quickly forced to the ground and his hands controlled. Those hands didn't possess a weapon, but he might have a grenade in his pocket or worse, be wearing an explosive suicide belt under his clothing. Anyone associated with such high-level terrorists might have such deadly devices, and we couldn't assume otherwise. Just to be sure, he had to be searched quickly. In that instant, I became keenly aware that we were all alone in the world, totally separated from our unit. The rest of our SEAL assault force didn't know where we were. There hadn't been time to notify him. I wasn't even sure exactly where we were located relevant to their position. All around us were darkened windows and rooftops of uncleared buildings where enemy fighters might be lurking, preparing to attack and unleash hell on us at any second. We had to get back and link up with our troops ASAP. But even before we can cuff the man's hand and begin to pat down for weapons, I heard movement. As I looked down the alleyway through my night vision goggles, suddenly seven or eight men around rounded the corner not 40 yards from us. They were heavily armed and rapidly moving towards us. For a split second, my mind questioned what my eyes were seeing. But there it was, the unmistakable outlines of AK-47 rifles, an RPG-7 shoulder-fired rocket, and at least one belt-fed machine gun. They weren't there to shake our hands. They were armed enemy fighters maneuvering to attack. Now, the two of us, the EOD operator and I, were in a hell of a tight spot. The subdued Iraqi man and possible terrorists we were holding had not yet been searched, a situation that carried huge risks. We needed to fall back and link up with the rest of our force. Now, with a larger enemy force maneuvering on us with heavier firepower, the two of us were outnumbered and outgunned. Finally, I desperately needed to resume my role as ground force commander, dispense with hold with handling prisoners, and get back to my job of command and control for the assault force, our vehicles, and coordination with our distant supporting assets. All this had to be accomplished immediately. I had deployed to Iraq before, but never had I been in a situation like this. Though combat is often depicted in movies and video games, this was not a movie, and it certainly was no game. There were heavily armed and dangerous men determined to kill American and Iraqi troops. Were any of us to fall into their hands, we would expect to be tortured in unspeakable ways and then decapitated on video for the world to see. They wanted nothing more than to kill us and were willing to die by the dozen to do so. 
blood pumping, adrenaline surging. I knew every nanosecond counted. This situation could overwhelm the most competent leader and seasoned combat veteran. But the words of my immediate boss, our task unit commander, Lieutenant Commander Jocko Willink, echoed in my head, words I regularly heard during a full year of intense training and preparation. Relax, look around, make a call. Our SEAL platoon and task unit had trained extensively through dozens of desperate, chaotic, and overwhelming situations to prepare for just such a moment. I understood how to implement the laws of combat that Jocko had taught us. Cover and move, simple, prioritize and execute, and decentralize command. The laws of combat were the key to not just surviving a dire situation such as this, but actually thriving, enabling us to totally dominate the enemy and win. They guided my next move. Prioritize. Of all the pressing tasks at hand, if I didn't first handle the armed enemy fighters bearing down on us, Within the next few seconds, nothing else would matter. We would be dead. Worse, the enemy fighters would continue their attack and might kill more of our SEAL assault force. This was my highest priority. Execute. Without hesitation, I engaged enemy enemy fighters moving forward with my Colt M4 rifle, hammering the first insurgent in line, carrying the RPG with three or four rounds to the chest, dead center. As he dropped, I rapidly shifted fire to the next bad guy, then to the next. The muzzle flashes and report of the rifle announced to all with an earshot that a firefight was on. The group of enemy fighters hadn't bargained for this. They panicked, and those who could still run beat a hasty retreat back the way they had come. Some crawled, and others dragged the wounded and dying around the street corner out of sight as I continued to engage them. I knew I had hit at least three or four of them. Though the rounds had been accurate and impacted the enemy fighter's center of mass, The 5.56-millimeter round was just too small to have much knockdown power. Now the bad guys were around the corner, some, no doubt dead, or gravely wounded, and soon to be. But surely those who were unscathed would regroup and attack again, likely rounding up even more fighters to join their efforts. We needed to move. There was no time for a complex plan, nor did I have the luxury of providing specific direction to my shooting buddy, the EOD operator next to me. But we had to execute immediately, having dealt with the highest priority task, armed enemy fighters maneuvering to attack. And with that threat, at least temporarily checked, our next priority was to fall back and link up with our SEAL assault force. To do this, the EOD operator and I utilized cover and move teamwork. I provided cover fire while he bounded back to a position where he could cover me. Then I moved to a new position to cover for him. Thus, we leapfrogged our way back toward the rest of our team with the prisoner in tow. As soon as we reached the cover of a concrete wall in a perpendicular alleyway, I kept my weapon at the ready to cover while the EOD operator conducted a quick search of the prisoner. Finding no weapons, we then continued back and linked up with our team and, once there, handed off the prisoner to the designated prisoner handling team with the assault force. Then I resumed my role as ground force commander, directing my mobility commander in charge of the vehicles to move a Humvee with its 50 cal caliber heavy machine gun to a position where we could repel any further attacks from the direction the enemy fighters had come. Next, I had our SEAL radio men communicate with our tactical operations center located miles away to keep him informed and get the TOC spinning to coordinate air support to assist us. For the next half hour, the insurgents attempted to maneuver on us and dumped hundreds of rounds in our direction, but we remained one step ahead of them and repeatedly beat back their attacks. The man we had chased down turned out not to be our target. He was briefly detained for questioning, turned over to a detention facility, 
and then released. We didn't find our target that night. The Al-Qaeda and Iraq Amir had apparently departed sometime prior to our arrival, but we killed at least a handful of his fighters and we collected valuable intelligence on his operations and organization. Though the operation failed to achieve its primary objective, we did, we did demonstrate to the terrorists and his cronies that there were no areas where they could safely hide. This likely forced him, in the short term at least, to focus efforts on his own preservation rather than plotting his next attack. In that, we had helped protect American lives in addition to Iraqi security forces and innocent civilians, which was at least a consolation prize. For me, the biggest gain was, was in leadership lessons learned. Some were simple, as in the acknowledgement that before any combat operation, I need to do much more careful map study to memorize the basic layout of the area around the target for times when I couldn't immediately access my map. Some lessons were procedural, like establishing clear guidelines for our operators about just how far we should chase squirters without first coordinating with the rest of the team. Other lessons were strategic. With proper understanding and application of the laws of combat, we had not only survived a difficult and dangerous situation, but dominated. As an entire generation of SEAL, com SEAL combat leaders and I would learn, these laws of combat could be applied with equal effectiveness in an intense firefight or in far less dynamic and high-pressure situations. That guided me through months of sustained urban combat in Ramadi throughout my career as a SEAL officer and beyond. Those same principles are the key to any team success on the battlefield or in the business world. Any situation where a group of people must work together to execute a task and accomplish a mission. When applied to any team, group, or organization, the proper understanding and execution of these laws of combat would mean one thing. Victory. Leadership, the single most important factor. This book is about leadership. It was written for leaders of teams, large and small, for men and women, for any person who aspires to better themselves. Though it contains exciting amount accounts of SEAL combat operations, this book is not a war memoir. It is instead a collection of lessons learned from our experiences to help other leaders achieve victory. It serves as a useful guide to leaders who aspire to build, train, and lead high-performance winning teams. Then it has accomplished its purpose. Among the legions of leadership books and publication, we found most focus on individual practices and perfect character traits. We also observed that many corporate leadership training programs and management consulting firms do the same. But without a team, a group of individuals working to accomplish a mission, there can be no leadership. The only meaningful measure for a leader is whether the team succeeds or fails. For all the definitions, descriptions, and characterizations of leaders, there are only two that matter, effective and ineffective. Effective leaders lead successful teams that accomplish their mission and win. Ineffective leaders do not. The principles and concepts described in this book, when properly understood and implemented, enable any leader to become effective and dominate his or her battlefield. Every leader in every team at some point or time will fail and must confront that failure. That, too, is a big part of this book. We are by no means infallible leaders. No one is, no matter how experienced. Nor do we have all the answers. No leader does. We've made huge mistakes. Often, our mistakes provide the greatest lessons, humbled us, and enabled us to grow and become better. For leaders, the humility to admit and own mistakes and develop a plan to overcome them is essential to success. 
The best leaders are not driven by ego or personal agendas. They are simply focused on the mission and how to best accomplish it. As leaders, we have experienced both triumph and tragedy. The bulk of our combat experiences and the stories told in this book come from what will always be the highlight of our military careers, SEAL Team 3 Task Unit Bruiser, and our historic combat deployment to Al-Ramadi, Iraq in 2006 through what became known as the Battle of Ramadi. Jocko led Bruiser as Task Unit Commander. Leif and his SEALs of Charlie Platoon, including lead sniper and point man Chris Kyle, the American sniper, and their brother SEALs in Delta Platoon, fought in what remains some of the heaviest sustained urban combat operations in the history of the SEAL teams. Bruiser SEALs played an integral role in the U.S. Army 1st Armored Division, Ready 1st Brigade seize, clear, hold, and build a strategy that systematically liberated the war-torn, insurgent-held city of Ramadi and radically lowered the level of violence. These operations established security in the most dangerous and volatile area in Iraq at the time and set conditions for the Anbar Awakening, a movement that eventually turned the tide for the United States and Iraq. In the spring of 2006, when Task Unit Bruiser first arrived in Ramadi, the war-torn capital city of of Al-Anbar province, was the deadly epicenter of the Iraqi insurgency. Ramadi, a city of 400,000, was a total war zone marred by rubble pile buildings and bomb craters, the scars of continuous violence. At that time, U.S. forces controlled only about one-third of the city. A brutal insurgency of well-armed and determined enemy fighters controlled the rest. Every day, brave U.S. soldiers and Marines were bloodied. The Camp Ramadi, Ramadi medical facility saw a near-constant flow of severely wounded or dead. Valiant U.S. military surgical teams desperately fought to save lives. A U.S. intelligence report leaked to the press grimly labeled Ramadi and Ambar province all but lost. Virtually no one thought it was possible that U.S. forces could turn that situation around there and win. Through the summer and fall of 2006, Jocko orchestrated Task Unit Bruiser's contribution to the Ready First Brigade's efforts as the SEAL platoon fought side-by-side with U.S. Army soldiers and Marines to clear out enemy-held areas into the city. Leif led Charlie platoon SEALs in scores of violent gut battles and highly effective sniper overwatch missions. Delta platoon fought countless fierce battles as well. Together, Task Unit Bruiser SEALs, snipers, riflemen, and machine gunners killed hundreds of enemy fighters and disrupted enemy attacks on U.S. soldiers, Marines, and Iraqi security forces. Bruiser SEALs frequently spearheaded the Ready First operations as the first U.S. troops on the ground in the most dangerous enemy-held neighborhoods. We secured buildings, took the high ground, and then provided cover as soldiers and Marines moved into contested areas and RV combat engineers furiously worked to build and fortify outposts in enemy territory. Bruiser SEALs and the first Ready First soldiers and Marines built a bond that will forever be remembered by those who serve there. Through much blood, sweat, and toil, the Ready First Combat Team and Task Unit Bruiser accomplished the mission. The violent insurgency was routed from the city. Tribal sheiks and Ramadi joined with U.S. forces, and the Ambar Awakening was born. Ultimately, in the months following Task Unit Bruiser's departure, Ramadi was stabilized, and the level of violence plummeted to levels previously unimaginable. 
Tragically, Task Unit Bruiser paid a tremendous cost for the success of these operations. Eight SEALs were wounded, and three of the best SEAL warriors imaginable gave their lives. Mark Lee and Mike Munsoor were killed in action. Ryan Job was blinded by an enemy sniper's bullet and later died while in the hospital recovering from surgery to repair his combat wounds. These losses were devastating to us, and yet there were only three of nearly 100 U.S. troops killed in action that were part of the Ready First Brigade combat team, each one a tragic and measurable loss. Despite the doubters and naysayers, Ramadi was won. The city stabilized and the populace secured. By early 2007, enemy attacks plunged from an average of 30 to 50 each day throughout much of 2006 to an average of one per week, then one per month. Ramadi remained a model of stability in one of the safest areas of Iraq outside the historically stable Kurdish-controlled north for years afterwards. These operations were victorious, but also extremely humbling. The takeaways, both good and bad, vast. The Battle of Ramadi provided a litany of lessons learned, which we were able to capture and pass on. The greatest of, the, of these was the recognition that leadership is the most important factor on the battlefield, the single greatest reason behind the success of any team. By leadership, we do not mean just senior commanders at the top, but the crucial leaders at every level of the team. The senior enlisted leaders, the fire team leaders in charge of four people, the squad leaders in charge of eight, and the junior petty officers that stepped up, took charge, and led. They, were, they each played an integral role in the success of our team. We were fortunate for the opportunity to lead such an amazing group of SEALs who triumphed in that difficult fight. Upon returning home from combat, we stepped into critical roles as leadership instructors. For many years, Navy SEAL leadership training consisted almost entirely of on-the-job training and mentoring. How a junior leader was brought up depended entirely on the strength, experience, and patient guidance of a mentor. Some mentors were exceptional, others lacking. While mentorship from the right leaders is critical, this method left some sustainable, substantial gaps in leadership knowledge and understanding. We helped to change that and develop leadership training curriculum to build a strong foundation for all SEAL leaders. As the officer in charge of all training for the West Coast SEAL teams, Jocko directed some of the most realistic and challenging combat training in the world. He placed new emphasis on training leaders and critical decision-making and effective communication in high-pressure situations to better prepare them for combat. Leif ran the SEAL Junior Office Officer Training Course, the basic leadership training program for every officer who graduated from the SEAL training pipeline. There, he reshaped and enhanced training to more effectively establish the critical leadership foundations necessary for new SEAL officers to succeed in combat. In these roles, we help guide a new generation of SEAL leaders who continue to perform with unparalleled success on the battlefield, validating the leadership principles we taught them. Some may wonder how Navy SEAL combat leadership principles translate outside the military realm to leading any team in any capacity. But combat is reflective of life, only amplified and intensified. Decisions have immediate consequences, and everything, absolutely everything, is at stake. The right decision, even when all seems lost, can snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. The wrong decision, even when a victorious outcome seems all but certain, can result in deadly, catastrophic failure. In that regard, a combat leader can acquire a lifetime of leadership lessons learned in only a few deployments. 
We hope to dispel the myth that military leadership is easy because subordinates robotically and blindly follow orders. On the contrary, U.S. military personnel are smart, creative, free-thinking individuals, human beings. They must literally risk life and limb to accomplish the mission. For this reason, they must believe in the cause for which they are fighting. They must believe in the plan they are asked to execute. And most important, they must believe and entrust the leader they are asked to follow. This is especially true in the SEAL teams, where innovation and input from everyone, including the most junior personnel, are encouraged. Combat leadership requires getting a diverse team of people in various groups to execute highly complex missions in order to achieve strategic goals, something that directly correlates with any company or organization. The same principles that make SEAL combat leaders and SEAL units so effective on the battlefield can be applied to the business world with the same success. Since leaving SEAL teams, we have worked with companies across a wide array of industries from financial, energy, technology, and construction sectors to insurance, auto, retail, manufacturing services. Having trained and worked with large numbers of leaders and company leadership teams, we have witnessed the extraordinary impact and increased efficiency, productivity, and profitability that results when these principles are properly understood and implemented. The leadership and teamwork concepts contained in this book are not abstract theories, but practical and applicable. We encourage leaders to do the things they know they probably should be doing, but aren't. But not doing those things, by not doing those things, they are failing as leaders and failing their teams. While rooted in common sense and based on the reality of practical experience, these principles require skill to implement. Such concepts are simple, but not easy, and they apply to virtually any situation, to any group, team, organization, or individual seeking to improve performance, capability, efficiency, and teamwork. They are sometimes counterintuitive and require focused effort and training to implement in practice. But this book provides the necessary guidance so that anyone can apply the principles and, with dedication and discipline over time, master them and become effective leaders. Organization and Structure the lessons we learned as SEAL leaders through our combined years of experience are numerous. For this book, we have focused our efforts on the most critical aspects, the fundamental building blocks of leadership. The book derives its title from the underlying principle, the mindset that provides the foundation for the rest, extreme ownership. Leaders must own everything in their world. There is no one else to blame. This book is organized into three parts. Part one, winning the war within. Part two, the laws of combat, and part three, sustaining victory. Winning the war within developed the fundamental building blocks and mindset necessary to lead and win. The laws of combat covers the four critical concepts described earlier that enable a team to perform at the highest level and dominate. Finally, sustaining victory discusses the more nuanced and difficult balance that leaders must navigate in order to to maintain the edge and keep the team perpetually operating at the highest level. Each chapter focuses on a different leadership concept, each unique through closely related and often mutually supporting. Within each chapter, there are three subsections. The first identifies a leadership lesson learned through our U.S. Navy SEAL combat or training experience. The second subsection explains that leadership principle. The third demonstrates that principle as application to the business world based on our work with a multitude of companies in a broad range of industries. 
We believe in these leadership concepts because we have seen them work time and again, both in combat and business. Their proper application to understanding ensure effective leaders and high-performing teams that produce extraordinary results. These principles empower those teams to dominate their battlefields by enabling leaders to fulfill their purpose, lead, and win. Part 1. Winning the War Within Chapter 1. The Malab District, Ramadi, Iraq, Fog of War The early morning light was dimmed by a literal fog of war that filled the air. Soot from fires, the insurgents had set alight in the streets. Clouds of dust kicked up from the road by U.S. tanks and Humvees and powdered concrete from the walls of buildings pulverized by machine gun fire. As our armored Humvee rounded the corner and headed down the street toward the gunfire, I saw a U.S. M1A2 Abrams tank in the middle of the road up ahead. Its turret rotated with the huge main gun trained on a building at almost point-blank range. Through the particle-filled air, I could see a smoky red mist, clearly from a red smoke grenade used by American forces in the area as a general signal for help. My mind was racing. This was our first major operation in Ramadi, and it was total chaos. Beyond the literal fog of war impeding our vision, the figurative fog of war, often attributed to Prussian military strategist Karl von Clausewitz, had descended upon us, and it was thick with confusion, inaccurate information, broken communications, and mayhem. For this operation, we had four separate elements of SEALs in our various sectors of this violent, war-torn city. Two SEAL sniper teams with U.S. Army scout snipers and a contingent of Iraqi soldiers and another element of SEALs embedded with Iraqi soldiers and their U.S. Army combat advisors assigned to clear an entire sector building by building. Finally, my SEAL senior enlisted advisor and I rode along with one of the Army company commanders. In total, about 300 U.S. and Iraqi troops, friendly forces, were operating in this dangerous and hotly contested neighborhood of eastern Ramadi, known as the Malab District. The entire place was crawling with Muj. And that's like their slang term for like uh, the enemy running around, Muj. As American forces called them, the enemy insurgent fighters called themselves Mujahideen, Arabic for those engaged in the jihad. We shortened it for expediency. They subscribed to a ruthless, militant version of Islam, and they were cunning, barbaric, and lethal. For years, the Malab had remained firmly in their hands. Now U.S. forces aimed to change that. The operation had kicked off before sunrise, and with the sun now creeping up over the horizon, everyone was shooting. The myriad of radio networks or nets used by the U.S. ground and air units exploded with chatter and incoming reports. Details of U.S. and Iraqi troops wounded or killed came in from different sectors. Following them were reports of enemy fighters killed. U.S. elements tried to decipher what was happening with other U.S. and Iraqi units in adjacent sectors. U.S. Marine Corps Anglico Naval, Nair, Gun, Naval, Air Naval Gunfire Liaison Company. That's one thing about the military. they got a lot of acronyms. Teams coordinated with American attack Aircraft overhead in an effort to drop bombs on enemy positions. Only a few hours into the operation, both of my SEAL sniper elements had been attacked and were now embroiled in serious gunfights. As the element of Iraqi soldiers, U.S. Army soldiers, and our SEALs cleared buildings across the sector, they met heavy resistance. 
Dozens of insurgent fighters mounted blistering attacks with PKC Russian belt-fed machine guns, deadly RPG-7 shoulder-fired rockets, and AK-47 automatic rifle fire. As we monitored the radio, we heard the U.S. advisors with one of the Iraqi army elements in advance of the rest of the report. They were engaged in a fierce firefight and requested a quick reaction force, QRF, for help. This particular QRF consisted of four U.S. Army armored Humvees, each mounted with an M2 50 caliber heavy machine gun and a dozen or so U.S. soldiers that could dismount and render assistance. Minutes later, over the radio net, one of my SEAL sniper teams called for heavy QRF. A section, meaning two, of the U.S. M1A2 Abrams main battle tanks that could bring the thunder with their 120mm main guns and machine guns. That meant my SEALs were in a world of hurt and in need of serious help. I asked the U.S. Army Company commander we were with to follow the tanks in, and he complied. Our Humvee rolled to a stop just behind one of the Abrams tanks. Its huge main gun pointed directly at a building ready to engage. Pushing open the the heavy armored door of my vehicle, I stepped out onto the street. I had a gut feeling that something was wrong. Running over to a Marine Anglico gunnery sergeant, I asked him, what's going on? Hot damn, he shouted with excitement. There's some mooge in that building right there putting up a serious fight. He pointed to the building across the street. His weapon trained in that direction. It was clear he thought these mooge were hardcore. They killed one of our Iraqi soldiers when we entered the building and wounded a few more. We've been hammering and I'm working to get some bombs dropped on them now. He was in the midst of coordinating an airstrike with U.S. aircraft overhead to wipe out the enemy fighters holed up in the building. I looked around. The building he pointed to was riddled with bullet holes. The QRF Humvees had put over 150 rounds from a 50 caliber heavy machine gun into it and many more smaller caliber rounds from their rifles and light machine guns. Now the Abrams tank had its huge main gun trained on the big building, preparing to reduce it to rubble and kill everyone inside. And if that still didn't do the job, bombs from the sky were next. But something didn't add up. We were extremely close to where one of our SEAL sniper teams was supposed to be. That sniper team had abandoned the location they had originally planned to use and were in the process of relocating to a new building when all the shooting started. In the mayhem, they hadn't reported their exact location, but I knew it would be close to the point where I was standing, close to the building Marine Gunnery Gunny had just pointed to. We really didn't add, what really didn't add up was that these Iraqi soldiers and their U.S. advisors shouldn't have arrived here for another couple of hours. No other friendly forces were to have entered this sector until we were properly deconflicted. Determine the exact position of our SEAL sniper team and pass that information to the other friendly units in the operation. But for some reason, there were dozens of Iraqi troops and their U.S. Army and Marine combat advisors in the area. It made no sense to me. Hole, what you got, Gunny? I'm going to go check it out, I said, motioning toward the building on which he had been working to coordinate the airstrike. He looked at me as if I were completely crazy. His his Marines and a full full platoon of Iraqi soldiers had been engaged in a vicious firefight with the enemy fighters inside that house and couldn't dislodge him. Whoever they were, they had put up one hell of a fight. In the Gunny's mind, for us to even approach that place seemed pretty much suicidal. 
I nodded at my senior enlisted SEAL who nodded back and we moved across the street toward the enemy infested house. Like most of the houses in Iraq, there was an eight foot concrete wall around it. We approached the door to the compound, which was slightly open. With my M4 rifle in hand, I kicked the door the rest of the way open, only to find I was staring at one of my SEAL platoon chiefs. He stared back at me in wide-eyed surprise. What happened, I asked him. Some mooj entered the compound. We shot one of them, and they attacked. Hardcore. They brought it. I remember what the gunny had just told me. One of their Iraqi soldiers had been shot when he entered the combat uh, compound. At that moment, it all became clear. In the chaos and confusion, somehow a rogue element of Iraqi soldiers had strayed outside the boundaries which they had been confined and attempted to enter the building occupied by our SEAL sniper team. In the morning darkness, our SEAL sniper element had seen the silhouette of a man armed with an AK-47 creep into their compound. While there were not supposed to be any friendlies in the vicinity, there were many enemy fighters known to be in the area. With that in mind, our SEALs had engaged the man with the AK-47, thinking they were under attack. Then all hell broke loose. When gunfire erupted from the house, the Iraqi soldiers outside the compound returned fire and pulled back behind the cover of the concrete walls across the street and in the surrounding buildings. They called in reinforcements, and U.S. Marines and Army troops responded with a vicious barrage of gunfire into the house they assumed was occupied by enemy fighters. Meanwhile, inside the house, our SEALs were pinned down and unable to clearly identify that it was friendly shooting at them. All they could do was return fire as best they could and keep up the fight to prevent being overrun by what they thought were enemy fighters. The U.S. Marine Anglico team had come very close to directing airstrikes on a house our SEALs were holed up in. When the 50 caliber machine gun opened up on their position, our SEAL sniper element inside the building, thinking they were under heavy enemy attack, called in a heavy QRF Abrams tank for support. That's when I had arrived on the scene. Inside the compound, the SEAL chief stared back at me somewhat confused. He no doubt wondered how I had just walked through a hellacious enemy attack to reach his building. It was blue on blue, I said to him. Blue on blue. Friendly fire. Fratricide. The worst thing that could happen to be killed or wounded by the enemy in battle was bad enough to be accidentally killed or wounded by friendly fire because someone had screwed up was the most horrible fate. It was also a reality. One had heard the story of X-ray platoon from SEAL Team 1 in Vietnam. The squad split up on a night patrol in the jungle, lost their bearings, and when they bumped into each other again in the darkness, they mistook each other for the enemy and opened up with gunfire. The, a ferocious firefight ensued, leaving one of their own dead and several wounded. That was the last X-ray platoon in the SEAL teams. Henceforth, the name was banished. It was a curse and a lesson. Friendly fire was completely unacceptable in the SEAL teams, and now it just happened to us, to my SEAL task unit. What? The SEAL chief asked with utter disbelief. It was blue on blue, I said again, calmly and as a matter of fact. There was no time to debate or discuss. There were real bad guys out there, and even as we spoke, sporadic gunfire could be heard all around as other elements engaged insurgents in the vicinity. Now what do you got? I asked, need to know his status of that of his men. One seal fragged in the face, not too bad, but everyone is rattled. Let's get him out of here, replied the chief. An armored personnel carrier, APC, had arrived with the heavy QRF and was sitting out front. There's an APC out front. Get your boys loaded up, I told him. Roger, said the chief. 
The SEAL chief, one of the best technical leaders I'd ever known, quickly got the rest of his SEALs and other troops down the front door. They looked more rattled than any human beings I'd ever seen. Having been on the receiving end of devastating 50 caliber machine gun rounds punching through the walls around them, they had stared death in the face and did not think they would survive. But they quickly got it together, boarded the APC, and left for the nearby U.S. forward operating base. Except the SEAL chief. Tough as nails and ready for more, he stayed with me, unfazed by what had happened, and was ready for what came next. I made my way back to the Marine Anglicogani. That building is clear, I told him. Roger that, sir, he replied, looking surprised as he quickly reported to the radio. Where's the captain, I asked, wanting to find the U.S. Army Company commander. Upstairs here, he replied, monitoring, uh, motioning to the building we were in front of. I walked upstairs and found the company commander hunkered down on the roof of the building. Everyone okay, he asked. It was blue on blue, I replied bluntly. What, he asked, stunned. It was blue on blue, I repeated. One Iraqi soldier, KIA, a few more wounded, one of my guys wounded, fragged in the face. Everyone is okay by a miracle. Roger replied, stunned and disappointed at what had transpired. No doubt, as an outstanding leader himself, he felt somewhat responsible. But having operated in this chaotic urban battlefield for months alongside Iraqi soldiers, he knew how easily such a thing could happen. But we still had to work and had to drive on. The operation continued. We conducted two more back-to-back missions, cleared a large portion of the Malab district, and killed dozens of insurgents. The rest of the mission was a success. But that didn't matter. I felt sick. One of my men was wounded. An Iraqi soldier was dead and others were wounded. We did it to ourselves, and it happened under my command. How many of you would be willing to do to say something like that? I watch people just make up shit all the time about their failures and their excuses in life. I mean, just imagine what you'd feel like if you actually owned it. Back to the book. When we completed the last mission of the day, I went to the Battalion Tactical Operations Center where I had my field commander set up to receive email from higher headquarters. I dreaded opening and answering the inevitable email inquiries about what had transpired. I wish I had died out on the battlefield. I felt that I deserved it. My email inbox was full. Word had rapidly spread that we had a blue on blue. I opened an email from my commanding officer that went straight to the point. It read, shut down, conduct no more operations, investigating officer, command master chief, and I are en route. In typical fashion for a Navy mishap, the CO had appointed an investigating officer to determine the facts of what happened and who was responsible. Another email from one of my old bosses stationed in another city in Iraq, but privy to what was happening in Ramadi, read simply, heard you had a blue on blue, what the hell? All the good things I had done and the solid reputation I had worked hard to establish in my career as a CO were now meaningless. Despite the many successful combat operations I led, I was now the commander of a unit that had committed the seal mortal sin. A day passed as I waited for the arrival of the investigating officer, our CEO, and command master chief, the senior enlisted seal at the command. In the meantime, they directed me to prepare a brief detailing what had happened. I knew what this meant. They were looking for someone to blame and most likely someone to relieve the military euphemism for someone to fire. Frustrated, angry, and disappointed that this had happened, I began gathering information. As we debriefed, it was obvious that there were some serious mistakes made by many individuals both during the planning phase and on the battlefield during execution. 
Plans were altered, but notifications weren't sent. The communication plan was ambiguous, and confusion about the specific timing of radio procedures contributed to critical failures. The Iraqi army had adjusted their plan, but had not told us. Timelines were pushed without clarification. Locations of friendly forces had not been reported. The list went on and on. Within Task Unit Bruiser, my own SEAL troop, similar mistakes had been made. The specific location of the sniper team in question had not been passed on to other units. Positive identification of the assumed enemy combatant, who turned out to be an Iraqi soldier, had been insufficient. And through SITREP situation report, had not been passed to me after the initial engagement took place. The list of mistakes was substantial. As directed, I put together a brief, a Microsoft PowerPoint presentation with timelines and depictions of the movements of friendly units on a map of the area. Then I assembled a list of everything that everyone had done wrong. It was a thorough explanation of what had happened. It outlined the critical failures that had turned the mission into a nightmare and cost the life of one Iraqi soldier, wounded several more, and, but for a true miracle, could have cost several of our SEALs their lives. But something was missing. There was one problem, some piece I hadn't identified, and it made me feel like the truth wasn't coming out. Who was to blame? I reviewed my brief again and again, trying to figure out the missing piece, the single point of failure that had led to the incident, but there were so many factors and I couldn't figure it out. Finally, the CEO and the CMC and the investigating officer arrived at our base. They were going to drop their gear, grab some food at the chow hall, and then we begin. We would bring everyone together to debrief the event. I looked through my notes again, trying to place blame. Then it hit me. Despite all the failures of individuals, units, and leaders, and despite the myriad mistakes that had been made, there was only one person to blame for everything that had gone wrong in the operation. Me. I hadn't been with our sniper team when they engaged the Iraqi soldier. I hadn't been controlling the rogue element of Iraqis that entered the combat. But that didn't matter. As the SEALs task unit commander, the senior leader on the ground in charge of the mission, I was responsible for everything in task unit bruiser. I had to take complete ownership of what went wrong. That is what a leader does, even if it means getting fired. If anyone was to be blamed and fired for what happened, let it be me. A few minutes later, I walked into the platoon space where everyone was gathered to debrief. The silence was deafening. The CEO sat in the front row. The CMC stood ominously in the back. The seal that had been wounded, fragged in the face by a fifty caliber round, was there, his face bandaged up. I stood before the group. Whose fault is whose fault was this? I asked a room full of teammates. After a few moments of silence, the seal who had mistakenly engaged the Iraqi soldier spoke up. It was my fault. I should have positively identified my target. No, it wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked the group again. It was my fault, said the radio man from the sniper element. I should have passed our position sooner. Wrong, I responded. It wasn't your fault. Whose fault was it? I asked again. It was my fault, said another SEAL, who was combat advisor with the Iraqi Army clearance team. I should have controlled the Iraqis and made sure they stayed in their sector. Negative, I said. You are not to blame. More of my SEALs were ready to explain what they had done wrong and how it had contributed to the failure. But I had heard enough. You, who, you know whose fault this is? You know who gets all the blame for this? 
The entire group sat there in silence, including the CEO, the CMC, and the investigating officer. No doubt they were wondering whom I would hold responsible. Finally, I took a deep breath and said, there's only one person to blame, me. I am the commander. I am responsible for the entire operation. As a senior man, I am responsible for every action that takes place on the battlefield. There is no one to blame but me. And I will tell you this right now. I'll make sure that nothing like this ever happens to us again. It was a heavy burden to bear, but it was absolutely true. I was the leader. I was in charge, and I was responsible. Thus, I had to take ownership of everything that went wrong. Despite despite the tremendous blow to my reputation and to my ego, it was the right thing to do, the only thing to do. I apologized to the wounded seal, explaining that it was my fault he was wounded and that we were all lucky he wasn't dead. We then proceeded to go through the entire operation piece by piece, identifying everything that happened and what could, what we could do going forward to prevent it from happening again. Looking back, it was clear that despite what happened, the full ownership I took of the situation actually increased the trust of my commanding officer and master chief had in me. If I had tried to pass the blame onto others, I suspect I would have been fired, deservedly so. The SEALs in the troop, who did not expect me to take the blame, respected the fact that I had taken full responsibility for everything that had happened. They knew it was a dynamic situation caused by a multitude of factors, but I owned them all. The U.S. Army and U.S. Marine conventional commanders took the debrief points as lessons learned and moved on. Having fought in Ramadi for an extended period of time, they understood something we SEALs did not. Blue on blue was a risk that had to be mitigated as much as possible in an urban environment, but that risk could not be eliminated. This was urban combat, the most complex and difficult of all warfare. It was simply impossible to conduct operations without some risk of blue on blue. But for SEALs accustomed to working in small groups against point targets, fratricide should never happen. A very senior and highly respected SEAL officer who before joined the Navy had been a U.S. Marine Corps platoon commander in Vietnam at the historic Battle of Ho City came to our task unit shortly after the incident. He told me that many of the Marine casualties in Hu were friendly fire, part of the brutal reality of urban combat. He understood what we had experienced and just how easily it could happen. But... While a blue-on-blue incident in an environment like Ramadi might be likely, if not expected, we vowed to never let it happen again. We analyzed what had happened and implemented the lessons learned. We revised our standard operating procedures and planning methodology to better mitigate risk. As a result of this tragic incident, we undoubtedly saved lives going forward. While we were mistakenly engaged by the friendly elements again many times during the rest of the employment, we never let it escalate, and we were always able to regain control quickly. But the tactical avoidance of fratricide was only one part of what I learned. When I returned home from deployment, I took over Training Detachment 1, which managed all training for West Coast SEAL platoons and task units in preparation for combat deployments. I set up scenarios where blue-on-blue shootings were almost guaranteed to happen. When they did, the training cadre explained how to avoid them. But more important, the commanders in training could learn what Hyatt learned about leadership. While some commanders took full responsibility for blue on blue, others blamed their subordinates for simulated fratricide incidents in training. 
These Uyghur commanders would get a solid explanation about the burden of command and the deep meaning of responsibility. The leader is truly and ultimately responsible for everything. This is extreme ownership, the fundamental core of what constitutes an effective leader in the SEAL teams or in any leadership endeavor. Principle. On any team, in any organization, all responsibility for success and failure rests with the leader. The leader must own everything in his or her world. There is no one else to blame. The leader must acknowledge mistakes and admit failures, take ownership of them, and develop a plan to win. The best leaders don't just take responsibility for their job. They take extreme ownership of everything that impacts their mission. This fundamental core concept enables SEAL leaders to lead high-performing teams in extraordinary circumstances and win. But extreme ownership isn't a principle whose application is limited to the battlefield. This concept is the number one characteristic of any high-performance winning team in any military unit, organization, sports team, or business team in any industry. When subordinates aren't doing what they should, leaders that exercise extreme ownership cannot blame the subordinates. They must first look in the mirror at themselves. The leader bears full responsibility for explaining the strategic mission. Developing the tactics and securing the training and resources to enable the team to properly and successfully execute. If an individual on the team is not performing at the level required for the team to succeed, the leader must train and mentor that underperformer. But if the underperformer continually fails to meet standards, then a leader who exercises extreme ownership must be loyal to the team and mission above any individual. If underperformers cannot improve, the leader must make the tough call to terminate them and hire others who can get the job done. It is all on the leader. As individuals, we often attribute the success of others to luck or circumstances and make excuse for our own failures and the failures of our team. That sounds pretty fresh recently, right? That's half of what I've been reading off fucking Facebook from you guys, by the way as you're not prepared for something going around and it's everybody else's fault but yours. Back to the book. We blame our own poor performance on bad luck, circumstances beyond our control, or poorly performing subordinates, or the government, that was my insert, anyone but ourselves. Total responsibility for failure is a difficult thing to accept, especially if you call me fuck, and taking ownership when things go wrong requires extraordinary humility and courage. But doing just that is an absolute necessity to learning, growing as a leader, and improving a team's performance. Extreme ownership requires leaders to look at an organization's problems through the objective lens of reality without emotional attachments to agendas or plans. It mandates that a leader set ego aside, accept responsibility for failures, attack weaknesses, and consistently work to build a better and more effective team. Such a leader, however, does not take credit for his or her team's success, but bestows that honor upon his subordinate leaders and team members. When a leader sets such an example and expects this from junior leaders within the team, the mindset develops into the team's culture at every level. With extreme ownership, junior leaders take charge of their smaller teams and their place on the mission. Efficiency and effectiveness increase exponentially, and a high-performance winning team is a result. Application to business. The vice president's plan looked good on paper. The board of directors had approved the plan the previous year and thought it would decrease production costs, but it wasn't working, and the board wanted to find out why. 
Who was at fault? Who was to blame? I was brought on by the company to help provide leadership guidance and executive coaching in the company's vice president of manufacturing. Although technically sound and experienced in his particular industry, the VP hadn't met the manufacturing goals set forth by the company's board of directors. His plan included the following, consolidate manufacturing plants to eliminate redundancy, increase worker productivity through an incentivized bonus program, and streamline the manufacturing process. The problem arose in the plan's execution. At each quarterly board meeting, the VP delivered a myriad of excuses as to why so little of his plan had been executed. After a year, the board wondered if he could effectively lead this change. With little progress to show, the VP's job was now at risk. I arrived on scene two weeks before the next board meeting. After spending several hours with the CEO to get some color on the situation, I was introduced to the VP of manufacturing. My initial assessment was positive. The VP was extremely smart and incredibly knowledgeable about the business. But would he be open to coaching? So you're here to help me, right? The VP inquired. Knowing that, due to ego, some people bristle at the idea of criticism and coaching no matter how constructive, I chose to take a more indirect approach. Maybe not so much here to help you, but here to help the situation, I answered, effectively lowering the VP's defenses. In the weeks leading up to the board meeting, I researched and examined the details of why the VP's plan had failed and encountered failed and what had gone wrong, and I spoke to the v- VP about the problems encountered in the plan's execution. He explained that the consolidation of manufacturing plants had failed because his district, his distribution managers feared that increasing the distance between plants and distribution centers would prevent face-to-face interaction with the manufacturing team and reduce their ability to tweak order specifics. They surmised it would also inhibit their ability to handle rush order deliveries. The VP dismissed his distribution manager's concerns as unfounded. In the event the need arose to adjust orders or customize, or customize, a teleconference or video conference would more than suffice. The VP also explained why the incentivized bonus structure hadn't been put in place. Each time his plant managers and other key leaders were presented with the rollout plan, they pushed back with concerns. The employees wouldn't make enough money. They would leave for jobs with higher base salaries that didn't require minimum standards. Recruiters would capitalize on the change and pull skilled workers away. When the VP pushed the manufacturing managers harder, they teamed up with the sales managers. The two groups opposed the VP's plan, claiming it was the company's reputation for skilled manufacturing that kept business coming in, and such a change would put the business at risk. Finally, when it came to the VP's plan to streamline the manufacturing process, the pushback was universal and straight from a classic mantra of anti-change. We've always done it this way. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. What does the board think of these reasons, I asked as we discussed the upcoming annual board meeting. They listen, but I don't think they really understand them. And they've been hearing the same reasons for a while now, so I think they're getting frustrated. I don't know if they believe them anymore. They sound like excuses. I finished the sentence for the VP, knowing the word itself was a big blow to his ego. Yes, yes, they sound like excuses, but they are real and legitimate, insisted the VP. Could there be other reasons your plan wasn't successfully executed, I asked? Absolutely, the VP answered. The market has been tough. New technology advancements has taken some time to work through. Everyone got focused on some products and never really amounted to much. So, yeah, there are a host of other reasons. Those all may be factors, but there is one most important reason why this plan has failed, I said. 
What's the reason? The VP inquired with interest. I paused for a moment to see if the VP was ready for what I had to tell him. The impact would be uncomfortable, but there was no way around it. I stated it plainly. You. You are the reason. The VP was surprised and defensive. Me? He protested. I came up with a plan. I have it delivered over. I have delivered it over and over. It's not my fault they aren't executing it. I listened patiently. By the way, I hear this shit all the time. Don't do it to me. Back to the book. The plant managers, the distribution and sales team don't fully support the plan, he continued. So how am I supposed to execute it? I'm not out there in the field with them. I can't make them listen to me. The VP statement gradually became less empathetic. He soon realized what he was saying. He was making excuses. I explained that the direct responsibility of a leader included getting people to listen, support, and execute plans. To drive the point home, I told him, you can't make people listen to you. You can't make them execute. That might be a temporary solution for a simple task, but to implement real change to drive people to accomplish something truly complex or difficult or dangerous, you can't make people do those things. You have to lead them. I did lead him, he protested. They just didn't execute. But he hadn't led them, at least not effectively. The measure of this was clear. He had been unsuccessful in implementing his plan. When I was in charge of a SEAL platoon or SEAL task unit conducting combat operations, do you think every operation I led was a success? I asked. He shook his head. No. Absolutely not, I agreed. Sure, I led many operations that went well and accomplished the mission, but not always. I've been in charge of operations that went horribly wrong for a number of reasons. Bad intelligence, bad decisions by subordinate leadership, mistakes by shooters, coordinating units not following the plan. The list goes on. Combat is a dangerous, complex, dynamic situation where all kinds of things can go sideways in a hurry with life or death consequences. There is no way to control every decision, every person, every occurrence that happens out there. It's just impossible. But let me tell you something. When things go wrong, you know who I blamed? I asked, pausing slightly for this to sink in. Me, I said. I blame me. I continued. As a commander, everything that happened on the battlefield was my responsibility. Everything. If a support unit didn't do what we needed it to do, then I hadn't given clear instructions. If one of my machine gunners engaged targets outside his field of fire, then I had to ensure he understood where his field of fire was. If an enemy surprised us and hit us where we hadn't expected, then I hadn't thought through all the possibilities. No matter what, I could never blame other people when the mission went wrong. The VP contemplated this. After a thoughtful silence, he responded, I always thought I was a good leader. I've always been in leadership positions. That might be one of the issues. In your mind, you are doing everything right, so when things go wrong, instead of looking at yourself, you blame others. But no one is infallible. With extreme ownership, you must remove individual ego and personal agenda. It's all about the mission. How can you best get your team to most effectively execute the plan in order to accomplish the mission, I continued. That is the question you have to ask yourself. That is what extreme ownership is all about. The VP nodded, beginning to grasp the concept and see its effectiveness. Do you think that every one of your employees is blatantly disobedient, I said? No, the VP said. If so, they'd need to be fired, but that doesn't seem to be the situation here, I continued. Your people don't need to be fired. They need to be led. So what am I doing wrong as a leader? How can I lead them? Well, it all starts right here with you, I said. You must assume total ownership of the failure to implement your new plan. You are to blame, and that is exactly what you need to tell the board. 
Tell the board that. Are you serious? The VP asked in disbelief. I don't mind taking a little blame, but this is not all my fault. Though beginning to see the light, he still resists the idea of taking total responsibility. In order to execute this plan, in order to truly become an effective leader, you have to realize and ex- you have to realize and accept total responsibility. You have to own it. The VP was not yet convinced. If one of your manufacturing managers came to you and said, "My team is failing," what would your response be? Would you blame their team? I asked. No, the VP admitted. I explained that the officer in charge of training for the West Coast SEAL teams, we put SEAL units through highly demanding scenarios to get them ready for combat in Iraq and Afghanistan. When SEAL leaders were placed in worst-case scenario training situations, it was almost always the leaders' attitudes that determined whether their SEAL units would ultimately succeed or fail. We knew how hard the training missions were because we had designed them. In virtually every case, the SEAL troops and platoons that didn't perform well had leaders who blamed everyone and everything else, their troops, their subordinate leaders, or the scenario. They blamed the SEAL training instructor staff. They blamed inadequate equipment or the experience level of their men. They refused to accept responsibility. Poor performance and mission failure were the result. The best performing SEAL units had leaders who accepted responsibility for everything. Every mistake, every failure or shortfall, those leaders would own it. During the debrief after a training mission, those good SEAL leaders took ownership of failures, sought guidance on how to improve, and figured out a way to overcome challenges on the next iteration. The best leaders checked their egos, accepted blame, sought out constructive criticism, and took detailed notes for improvement. They exhibited extreme ownership, and as a result, their SEAL platoons and task units dominated. When a bad SEAL leader walked into a debrief and blamed everyone else, that attitude was picked up by the subordinates and team members who who then followed suit. They all blamed everyone else, and inevitably the team was ineffective and unable to properly execute a plan. Continuing, I told the VP, in those situations, you ended up with a unit that never felt they were to blame for anything. All they did was make excuses and ultimately never made the adjustments necessary to fix problems. Now, compare that to the commander who came in and took the blame. He said, my subordinate leaders made bad calls. I must not have explained the overall intent well enough. Or, the assault force didn't execute it the way I envisioned. I need to make sure they better understand my intent and rehearse more thoroughly. The good leaders took ownership of the mistakes and shortfalls. That's the key difference. And how do you think their SEAL platoons and task units reacted to this type of leadership? They must have expected that, the VP acknowledged. Exactly. They see extreme ownership in their leaders, and as a result, they emulate extreme ownership through the chain of command down to the most junior personnel. As a group, they try and figure out how to fix their problems. Instead of trying to figure out who to blame, or what to blame. For those who are outside looking in, like our training group, or the board in your case, the difference is obvious. And that is how I appear to the board right now, blaming everyone and everything else, the VP recognized. There is only one way to fix it, I told him. For the next several days, I helped the VP prepare for the board meeting. At times, he slipped back into defensiveness, not wanting to accept blame. He felt in many ways that his knowledge exceeded that of many members of the board, and he was probably right. But that didn't change the fact that he was a leader of a team that was failing in its mission. And we rehearsed the VP's portion of the board presentation. I was unconvinced that he truly accepted total responsibility for his team's failures. I told him that bluntly. 
I'm saying exactly what you told me to say, the VP reported, retorted. The reason that this mission was, un- was unsuccessful was my failure as a leader to force execution. That's the problem, I said. You're saying it, but I'm not convinced you believe it. Look at your career. You have accomplished amazing things, but you certainly aren't perfect. None of us are perfect. You are still learning and growing. We all are. And this is a lesson for you. If you re-engage on this task, if you do a stern self-assessment of how you lead and what you can do better, the outcome will be different. But it starts here. It starts the board meeting when you go in, put your ego aside, and take ownership for the company's failure. The board members will be impressed with what they see in here because most people aren't able to do this. They will respect your extreme ownership. Take personal responsibility for the failures. You will come out on the other side stronger than ever before, I concluded. At the board meeting, the VP did just that. He took blame for the failure to meet the manufacturing objectives and gave a solid, no-nonsense list of corrective measures that he can implement to ensure execution. The list started with what he was going to do differently, not about what other people needed to do. Now the VP was on his way to extreme ownership. Chapter two, where are we at? Hour and 32 minutes. Let's go 30 more minutes. Chapter two, no bad teams, only bad leaders. Coronado, California, basic underwater demolition seal training. little vape not on not in the book so if you go back and listen to podcast 100 side a and b you can get the sad story of my life but i remember when i started to accept responsibility i had some bad partners you go back and listen to that and i made some really bad decisions on partnering with them and they were not a a good crowd and there were several things i should have said or done that i didn't until it was too late and I had a really good friend point that out to me several times, and I'm glad I really listened. And um, while I was also a victim, I had to accept that uh, my part in it and that I had done this to other people too and that they couldn't have done it without me, right? So just remember it doesn't include intent, right? We're just looking at the outcome. That's, you know, that's mistakes and accepting responsibility for them doesn't make you a bad person like you intended to do it. I certainly didn't intend to fuck a bunch of people's money up, right? But that's what I did. That's certainly what I did. Back to the book. It pays to be a winner, shouted a much-feared blue and gold-shirted Navy SEAL instructor through the megaphone. It was night three in the infamous hell week of SEAL training. The students in camouflage fatigues were soaked to the bone and covered in gritty sand that chafed them until they were raw and bleeding. They shivered from the cold ocean water and cool wind of the Southern California night. The students move with the aches and pains as only those who have suffered through 72 hours straight of nearly nonstop physical exertion can. Exhausted over the previous three days, they had slept for less than one hour total. Since Hell Week had begun, dozens of them had quit. Others had become sick or injured and were pulled from training. When this class had started basic underwater demolition seal training, known as BUDS, the SEAL basic training course, several weeks before, nearly 200 determined young men had eagerly begun. All dreamed of becoming U.S. Navy SEALs. It's like real estate, right? You go to the course, go to your little seminar. Everybody there is going to get rich. Then you find out nobody's going to do it. Back to the book. Prepared for years and came to BUDS with every intention of graduating. And yet, with the first 48 hours of Hell Week, most of these young men had surrendered to the brutal challenge. 
rung the bell three times, the signal for door, drop on request, D-O-R, and walked away from their dream of becoming a SEAL. They had quit. Hell Week was not a fitness test. While it did require some athletic ability, every student that survived the weeks of Bud's training prior to Hell Week had already demonstrated adequate fitness to graduate. It was not a physical test, but a mental one. Sometimes the best athletes in the class didn't make it through Hell Week. Success resulted from determination and will, but also from innovation and communication with the team. Such training and graduated men who are not only physically tough, but also could go out and think, outthink their adversary. Only a few years before, I had suffered through my own Bud's class Hell Week on this very beach. We began our Hell Week with 101 students. When we finished, only 40 of us remained. Some of the most gifted athletes in the class and loudest talking muscle heads had been the first to quit. Those of us that had made it through realized we could push ourselves mentally and physically much further than most ever thought possible through the pain, misery, and exhaustion of days without sleep. Precisely what Hell Week was designed to do. Now I wore the blue and gold shirt of a SEAL instructor. Following two combat deployments to Iraq, I was assigned to our Naval Special Warfare Training Center to instruct the Junior Officer Training Course, our Officer Leadership Program. In addition to my day job, I supported Hell Week as an instructor. As the officer in charge of this Hell Week shift, my job was to oversee the crew of Bud's instructors who ran the training. The instructors were experts at their jobs of putting these students to the test. They were especially skilled at weeding out those who don't have what it takes to become a SEAL. For me, to observe Hell Week from an instructor perspective was a whole new experience. The Bud students were grouped into teams, boat crews of seven men established by height. Each seven-man boat crew was assigned an IBS, inflatable boat small. An IBS was small by U.S. Navy terms, but awfully large and heavy when carried by hand. These large rubber boats, black with a painted yellow rim, weighed nearly 200 pounds, became heavier still when filled with water and sand. A relic from the Navy Frogman underwater demolitions team days of World War II, the dreaded boats have been awkwardly carried everywhere, usually upon the hands of seven boat crew members struggling underneath. On land, the boat crews carried them up and over 20 feet high sand berms and ran them for miles along the beach. They carried them on the hard asphalt streets back and forth across naval amphibious base Coronado, trying like hell to keep up with instructors leading the way. The boat crews even pushed, pulled, squeezed, and muscled the unwieldy boats through the ropes and over the telephone poles and walls of a notorious Bud's obstacle course. Out on the Pacific Ocean, the boat crews paddled their boats to the powerful, crashing waves, often capsizing and scattering wet students and paddles across the beach like a storied shipwreck. These damn rubber boats were the source of a great deal of misery for the men assigned to them. Each boat had a Roman numeral painted in bright yellow on the front, indicating the boat crew number, all except a boat crew made up of the shortest men in the class known as the Smurf crew. They had a bright blue Smurf painted on the bow of their boat. And each boat crew, the senior ranking men, served as boat crew leader, responsible for receiving orders, from the instructors and briefing, directing, and leading the other six members of the boat crew. The boat crew leader bore responsibility for the performance of his boat crew, and while each member of the boat crew had to perform, the boat crew leader, by his very position as leader, 
received the most scrutiny from the instructor staff. During SEAL training, and really throughout a SEAL's career, every evolution was a competition, a race, a fight, a contest. In BUDS, this point was driven home by the SEAL instructors, who constantly reminded the students it pays to be a winner. When racing a boat crew during Hell Week, the winning boat crew's prize for victory was to sit out the next race, earning a few brief minutes of respite from the grueling nonstop physical evolutions. They weren't allowed to sleep, but just to sit down and rest were especially precious commodities. While it paid to be a winner, the rule had a corollary. It really sucked to be a loser. Second place is the first loser. That's not in the book. Second place in the instructor's vernacular was simply the first loser. I guess it was in the book. (laughs) It just had to be patient. But bad performance, falling far behind the rest of the pack and coming in dead last, carried especially grueling penalties, unwanted attention, from the SEAL instructors who dished out additional punishing exercises on top of an already exhausting Hell Week evolutions. Meanwhile, the victorious boat crew celebrated by sitting out the next race and, most important, not getting wet and cold for a few brief moments. The SEAL instructor cadre kept the students moving with the constant boat crew races, giving detailed and intentionally complicated instructions to the boat crews, who in turn briefed their men and executed the instructions as best they could in their exhausted state. The command went out from the SEAL instructors with the megaphone, Boat crew leaders report! The boat crew leaders left their boats and ran to take position, forming a smart line in front of the SEAL instructor who laid out the specifics of the next race. Paddle your boats out through the surf zone, dump boat, paddle your boats down to the next beach marker, then paddle them back to the beach, run up and over the berm and around the berm marker, then head carry back to the rope station, then over the berm and finish here, commanded the SEAL instructor. Got it? The boat crew leaders raced back and briefed their boat crews. Then the race began. In place of the traditional ready, set, go, the SEAL commander to begin was stand by, Bust them, and they were off. In every race, there were standout performers. Throughout this particular Hell Week, one boat crew dominated the competition, Boat Crew 2. They won or nearly won every single race. They pushed themselves hard every time, working in unison and operating as a team. Boat Crew 2 had a strong leader, and each of the individual boat crew members seemed highly motivated and performed well. They compensated for each other's weaknesses, helped each other, and took pride in winning, which had its rewards. After each victory, Boat Crew 2 enjoyed a few precious minutes of rest while the other boat crews toiled through the next race. Though Boat Crew 2 was still cold and exhausted, I saw smiles on most of their faces. They were performing exceptionally well. They were winning, and morale was high. Meanwhile, Boat Crew 6 was delivering a standout performance of a different kind. They placed dead last in virtually every race, often lagging behind the rest of the class. Rather than working together as a team, the men were operating as individuals furious and frustrated at their teammates. We heard them yelling and cursing at each other from some distance, accusing the others of not doing their part. Each boat crew member focused on his own individual pain and discomfort. And the boat crew leader was no exception. He certainly recognized they were underperforming, but likely in his mind and that of his boat crew, no amount of effort could change that. And their horrific performance was the result. Boat crew six, you better start putting out, blared a SEAL instructor through the megaphone. 
extra attention from the instructor's staff has serious consequences. RCL instructors were all over Boat Crew 6, dishing out punishment for their poor performance. As a result, the misery multiplied tenfold for Boat Crew 6. They were forced to sprint back and forth over the sand berm, down to the water to get wet and sandy, then bear crawl on blistered hands and feet. Next, they had to hold the boat at extended arm carry, with their arms fully extended overhead, supporting the full weight of the IBS until their shoulders were completely smoked. This punishment sapped every ounce of remaining strength from the already weary and demoralized boat crew. The boat crew leader, a young and experienced officer, was getting even more attention. As a leader, he bore the responsibility of his boat crew's poor performance. Yet he seemed indifferent, as though his fate had dealt him a poor hand, a team of underperformers who, no matter how hard he tried, simply could not get the job done. I kept my eye on the leader of Boat Crew 6. If he did not show substantial improvement in leadership ability, he would not graduate from the program. SEAL officers were expected to perform like everyone else, but more important, they were also expected to lead. So far, Boat Crew 6 leader was demonstrating performance that was subpar and unacceptable. Our SEAL senior chief petty officer, the most experienced and highly respected non-commissioned officer, of the SEAL instructor cadre took a keen interest in Boat Crew 6 and their lackluster leader. You had better take charge and square your boat away, sir, said Senior Chief to Boat Crew 6 leader. Senior Chief was a Goliath of a man with piercing eyes that instilled fear equally into terrorists on the battlefield and students in training. An exceptional and revered leader himself, he had mentored many young junior officers. Now Senior Chief offered an interesting solution to Boat Crew 6's atrocious performance. Let's swap out the broke crew leaders from the best and worst crews and see what happens, said Senior Chief. All other controls would remain the same. Heavy and awkward boats manned by the same exhausted crews, cold water and gritty, chafing sand, wearied men competing in challenging races. Only a single individual, the leader, would change. Could it possibly make any difference, I wondered. The plan was quickly relayed to the other SEAL instructors. Boat crew leaders from Boat Crew's 2 and 6 report, blared SEAL instructor through the megaphone. The two boat crew leaders ran over and stood at attention. You two will swap positions and take charge of the other's boat crew. Boat Crew 6 leader, you are now leader of Boat Crew 2. Boat Crew 2 leader, you are now leader of Boat Crew 6. Got it, said the SEAL instructor. The boat crew leader from Boat Crew 2 was clearly not happy. I'm sure he hated to leave the team that he had built and knew well. No doubt he was proud of their dominant performance. The new assignment to take charge of a poorly performing boat crew would be difficult and could potentially invite unwanted attention from the SEAL instructors. Still, he dared not try to argue the point with the instructor. With no choice, he accepted the challenging assignment with a look of determination. Boat Crew 6's leader was obviously elated. It was clear he felt that only by the luck of the draw and no fault of his own had he been assigned to the worst boat crew of underperformers. You guys see what's coming through this? Hopefully, if you're one of these people and you're listening this wakes you the fuck up, pull your head out of your ass, and you get back to work. We need you. We don't need more fuck-off leaders. We need more good ones. Back to the book. In his mind, no amount of effort on his part could make Boat Crew 6 better. Now... The SEAL instructor directed him to take over Boat Crew 2. His face revealed his inner conviction that justice was finally being done and his new assignment meant things would now be easy for him. Having received the direction to swap places, each boat crew leader went to his new position, the opposite boat crew, and stood, and stood for the next race. As before, boat crew leaders were given instructions, and they, in turn, briefed their teams. 
Stand by. Bust them, came the command, and they were off. We watched the boat crew sprint over the berm, carrying their boats, then hurry down to the surf zone and into the dark water. They jumped into their boats and paddled furiously. Passing through the crashing waves, they dumped boat, got everyone back on board, then paddled back down to the beach. The headlights from our instructor's vehicles caught the reflection of the yellow painted, yellow bands painted around the boat rims. We could no longer see the boat numbers. However, two boats were ahead of the pack, almost neck and neck, with one vying for the lead. A half mile down the boat, as the instructor's trucks followed, the boat crews paddled back into shore. As the boats came in on the headlights, the numbers were clearly visible. Boat Crew 6 was in the lead, and they maintained first place all the way across the finish line just ahead of Boat Crew 2. Boat Crew 6 had won the race. A miraculous turnaround had taken place. Boat Crew 6 had gone from last place to first. The Boat Crew members had begun to work together as a team and won. Boat Crew 2 still performed well, though they narrowly lost the race. They continued to challenge Boat Crew 6 for the lead in the follow-on races, and each of these boat crews outperformed all the rest, with Boat Crew 6 winning most of the races over the better part of an hour. It was a shocking turn of events. Boat Crew 6, the same team in the same circumstances, only under new leadership, went from the worst boat crew in the class to the best. Gone where there was their cursing and frustration. And gone, too, was the constant scrutiny and individual attention they had received from the SEAL instructor staff. Had I not witnessed this amazing transformation, I might have doubted it. It was a glaring, undeniable example of one of the most fundamental and important truths at the heart of extreme ownership. There are no bad teams, only bad leaders. That means you. It means if your team's fucked up, you're fucked up. Back to the book. How is it possible that switching a single individual, only the leader, had completely turned around the performance of the entire group? The answer, leadership, is the single greatest factor in any team's performance. Whether a team succeeds or fails is all up to the leader. The leader's attitude sets the tone for the entire team. The leader drives performance or doesn't. And this applies not just to most senior leaders of an overall team, but to the junior leaders of teams within the team. I reflected back on my own experience as a boat crew leader in Buds through the tribulation tribulations of Hell Week, where I had failed and should have done better where I had succeeded. My boat crew at times had struggled to perform until I figured out that I had to put myself in the most difficult position at the front of the boat and lead. That required driving the boat crew members hard, harder than they thought they could go. I discovered that it was far more effective to focus their efforts not on the days to come or the far distant finish line they couldn't see, but instead on a physical goal immediately in front of them, the beach marker, landmark, a road sign 100 yards ahead. If we could execute with a monumental effort just to reach an immediate goal that everybody could see, we could continue to the next visibly attainable goal and then the next. When pieced together, it meant our performance over time increased substantially, and eventually we crossed the finish line at the head of the pack. Looking back, I could have yelled a lot less and encouraged more. As a boat crew leader, I protected my boat crew from the instructor staff as much as I could. It was us versus them. As I saw it, in protecting my boat crew, I actually sheltered a couple of perpetual underperformers who dragged the rest of the boat crew down. When Hell Week was over, taking Talking to some of the other members of our boat crew, we realized we had carried along these mentally weak performers. 
they almost certainly would not have met the standards otherwise. That loyalty was misguided. It wouldn't, if we wouldn't want to serve alongside our boat crew's weakest performers once we were assigned the SEAL platoons and various SEAL teams, we had no right to force other SEALs to do so. The instructors were tasked with weeding out uh, the instructors were tasked with weeding out those without the determination and will to meet high standards and performance. We had hindered that. Ultimately, how my boat crew performed was entirely on me. The concept that was there, no bad teams, only bad leaders, was a difficult one to accept, but nevertheless a crucial concept that leaders must fully understand and implement to enable them to most effectively lead a high-performance team. Leaders must accept total responsibility, own problems that inhibit performance, and develop solutions to those problems. A team that could only deliver exceptional performance if a leader ensured the team worked together toward a focused goal and enforced higher standards of performance, working to continuously improve. With a culture of extreme ownership within the team, every member of the team could contribute to this effort and ensure the highest levels of performance. Watching these events now unfold as a BUDS instructor, I knew that as difficult a challenge as Hell Week was for these students, it was only training. These young boat crew leaders could not fully comprehend the burden of leadership for which they would be responsible as SEAL officers on the battlefield, or maybe like in your company, right? As combat leaders, the pressure on them would be immense, beyond their imagination, only months before this very hell week, I had been a SEAL platoon commander in Ramadi, Iraq, leading combat missions into the most violent enemy-held areas of the city. We'd have been in more firefights than I could count against a well-armed, experienced, and highly determined enemy. Death lurked around the corner at any moment. Every decision I and the leaders within our platoon and task unit made carried potentially mortal consequences. We had delivered a huge impact on the battlefield, killed hundreds of insurgents, and protected U.S. soldiers and Marines. I was proud of those triumphs. But we had also suffered immense tragedy with the loss of the first Navy SEAL killed in combat in Iraq, Mark Lee. Mark was an incredible teammate, an exceptional SEAL warrior with an amazing sense of humor that kept us laughing through the darkest of times. He was shot and killed in the midst of a furious firefight in one of the largest single battles fought by U.S. forces in South Central Mahdi. Mark was my friend and brother. I was his commander, ultimately responsible for his life. Yet I had received only minor gunshot wound that day, while Mark was struck and killed instantly. I had come home and he had not. This was devastating beyond measure. I grieve too for Mike Monsoor from Task Unit Bruiser's Delta Platoon, who while not a member of my platoon, was also a friend and brother. Mike had jumped on a grenade to save three of his teammates. Can you believe that shit? Can you, do you even know somebody in your life that would do that? Back to the book. Mike was loved and respected by all who knew him. Like Mark, we deeply mourned his loss. On the same day Mark Lee had been killed, another beloved SEAL from Charlie Platoon, Ryan Job had been shot in the face by an enemy sniper. He was gravely wounded and we wouldn't sure he would live. Yet Ryan, tough as nails, had survived, although his wound left him permanently blind. Still, Ryan's drive and determination were unstoppable. He married the girl of his dreams and, after medically retiring from the Navy, enrolled in a college program and earned a business degree, graduating with a 4.0 GPA. Despite being blind, Ryan successfully reached the 14,410-foot summit of Mount Rainier, personally bagged a trophy bull elk, 
using a rifle fitted with a specially designed scope with a camera for a spotter. Ryan was an exceptional SEAL, a wonderful teammate, and a friend who inspired all who knew him. Though he had as much a right as anyone to be bitter about the hand life dealt him, he was not. We laughed continuously every time we got together. Ryan and his wife were expecting their first child, and he could hardly contain his excitement. But just when I thought the men of Charlie Platoon and Task Unit Bruiser and their families had suffered and endured so much were safe from the specter of death, Ryan Job died in recovery from a surgery to repair his combat wounds, wounds he had received under my charge. No words can fully describe the hammer blow this news dealt, agony beyond comprehension. As their platoon commander, the loss of Mark and Ryan were a crushing burden that I would bear for the rest of my days. I knew that Mike's platoon commander and Delta platoon felt the same way. And as commander of Task Unit Bruiser, Jocko carried this burden for us all. And yet, as difficult as this was for me, I knew I could never fully understand how devastating the loss of these fine men was to their families and closest friends. And the months and years ahead, it was my duty to help them and support them as best I could. 156. I think we're going to call it. I think we're, yeah, I think we're going to stop on page, bottom of page 52 of extreme ownership. I've been wanting to do this book for a while, but um, first I'm not an essential service. So there's not much I can do right now besides prospect and reach out to people. And, and I've been doing that and I've been cleaning up my database and everything else like that. Um, for whatever reason, I don't panic probably because I was raised everything else like that. I am watching people, basically the entire world, and half of you on Facebook, many of you whom I know and love, have a moral and political panic attack. And I think most of it has to do with feeling vulnerable and realizing that you didn't prepare as well as you should and that you're responsible for that and not everybody else around you. The government's not responsible for it. Your employer's not responsible for it. And I think this has people terrified and scared. And I don't know about you guys reading about it and seeing anybody give up and give a, a press conference while they murder our economy. It's not making anybody feel better. And there's not, as far as that goes, a whole heck of a lot we can do about it. But we can decide how we react to it and the lessons we learn. And apparently the lessons we learn, uh, we get bailed out by other people. And whether that's whether you think that's good or bad, I can tell you this has consequences on your personal psychology. I'm not talking about politics. I'm talking about psychology right now, right? You can step up and accept the fact that you weren't as prepared as you could have been and make the changes necessary for next time. Or you can continue on the path like that VP was where he's going into the board. You know, the problem is in real life, you don't have to go home to a board though, do you? You just got, you just got yourself in your head. So noodle, noodle on that. If you, if you will, um, hopefully we calm down. I wasn't worried until Friday and now I'm officially worried because if we panic, the cure can be worse than the disease.
right? And what do I mean by that? seems quite obvious, right? If you have an ingrown toenail or if you have an infection, do antibiotics. Don't cut off the leg. And we want to seem to cut off legs and both legs. And that is going to ruin many people's lives. Maybe you right now are that person. And what you need to do, step up, take extreme ownership for your position, and find a way to make it work. All right? Your employees need you. The economy needs you. Your family needs you. And I just want to put out there a little positive that something positive that you can figure this out. You know, if you stop before you start, you won't, but you can figure this out. Have some confidence in yourself that even though we have no idea what they're going to do next or how bad it's really going to be or how many people are really going to die and get sick, we don't know any of that, but we can we can have a better attitude. We can lead the people around us. We can reassure the people around us, we can reach out for help personally, and we can reach out to others and help them. Okay. Not a sermon, but I got to live in this fucking country. The rest of you fucks and you vote. You know what I'm saying with your panic. So get a hold of your, get a hold of your shit. Get yourself together, man. We need you. We need you out there getting some shit done. Don't break the law, but don't fucking lay down and quit. All right. I hate that quitting shit. Get up, get out there, do some stuff. Figure it out. Reach out. Ask for help. Help some other people. All right, folks. If there's anybody still like me after that, probably not. Um, if you enjoy this podcast <laughs> and uh, you want to help it out, there are some things you can do that I would really appreciate. First, the easiest thing you can do is rate and review on iTunes. It's free and it does help. You can share this podcast with others. You can hire me to list and sell your home for top dollar or one of my many other agents that I have. I've got some great ones. I got Eric Friday. Love him. Jay Donovan Smith working his way up. Rashonda Drew, Richard Williams, Mark Nishan, Savage Investor just closed on his flip today. And I got a few others too. There are many of us. If you don't like me, you probably like one of them, right? We don't just do investment stuff too. We also do personal residences, first time home buyers, all that. Or you can refer sellers and buyers to me or some of your wholesale deals. All right, folks. And if and when, well, no, when, when we can have meetings again, we're doing online meetings right now. But when we physically have meetings and you ever want to attend, go to renegadedetroit.com, meetup.com forward slash renegade Detroit investors or facebook.com forward slash Detroit Investment Club. You can hit me up on Twitter and Instagram at Jeremy Burgess. Of course, 313-600-2133. That's my cell. As always, to reach out to my boy, Joe Randall Mortgages by JoeRandall.com. For those who do attend the local meeting, the reason we have nice stereo equipment now is because Joe went out and spent a bunch of money and got it for us, right? So he's a mortgage lender. He is beloved by the Metro Detroit Real Estate Investors Group. I really like him as well. He knows what he's doing. He also lives in Detroit. You may very well have a mortgage lender you like, but reach out to Joe and check it out. See what you think of him. Mortgages by Joe Randall, 2Ls. com, And at least say thank you for buying us a bunch of nice shit so I can finally hear over everybody yelling at our meeting. Okay. And as I wrap up this podcast, I do want to take a moment to encourage you to take the steps you need to become financially independent. I know got fucking coronavirus going on. 
everybody panicking. You know what? None of that's an excuse. I know what it's like. I know. I remember having those excuses. I, I, I remember at one point, I couldn't remember the last time I brushed my teeth, right? Pick a goal. Stick with it. Don't give up. Do something every day that gets you close to your goals, even if it's one step. And for now, don't be afraid to ask for help and reach out and help others. Thank you for listening and for your attention. Until the next podcast or the next meeting, crush it.